This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome back to the Osher Mini Medical School on low back pain. I'm Dr. Chang, one of your moderators for tonight. I'm also joined by Dr. Kloping, who will be giving the second lecture in our course tonight. But first, a little bit about Dr. Kloping. She completed her medical school training, anesthesia residency, and pain management fellowship at UMDNJ Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Jersey. She subsequently served as assistant professor in anesthesiology and pain medicine at the same institution and was the assistant program director for the pain management fellowship there. She then moved to the Bay Area and she joined UCSF last year and is on staff as assistant professor in the anesthesia department. She covers all clinical operating room sites, as well as acute pain and regional anesthesia roles at most of our campuses. She also enjoys working with and mentoring trainees and is involved in medical student and resident education. It is now our pleasure to hand it over to Dr. Kloping. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Just gonna get my slides and set up and I'm very excited to talk about our topic for today. So our topic is, when is low back pain something else? Red flags for serious diseases. So we're going to review some of the less common reasons um, that patients might have low back pain um, and what to look out for. Our objective, objectives for today are to briefly review common causes of low back pain, um, define red flags in the assessment of low back pain, discuss risk factors for serious conditions um, associated, and review general guidance for seeking medical care in the setting of low back pain. To start off with, I just wanted to briefly review some facts about low back pain, which I'll be abbreviating during this presentation as LBP. Low back pain is the fifth most common reason for visiting a physician in the United States. The incidence of low back pain is between 13 and 31%. And the incidence of radicular symptoms in patients with low back pain is between 12 and 40%. So what I mean by radicular symptoms are sciatica type pain or shooting type pain down one or both legs. Um, as kind of depicted in this image on the side. In the vast majority of patients, the cause of low back pain is usually self-limited and symptoms improve within four to six weeks. So I wanted to briefly review some of the more common causes of low back pain before we discuss some of the red flags and serious conditions associated with low back pain. So we'll start off with some basics. Uh, muscle strain and ligament sprain. Um, muscle strain can happen when a muscle gets stretched too quickly or too forcefully, sometimes resulting in a muscle tear. A muscle strain can happen during an accident, for example, or, doing, or during a rapid movement or change in position. Sometimes can happen during exercise. A ligament sprain can be caused when a ligament gets stretched um, a bit and torn from its attachments. So ligaments are important in helping support our bony structures 
um, and the structures of our spine. Ligament strains can also occur from accidents and overuse or misuse. In terms of our next major cause of low back pain, arthritis, um, I just wanted to review some basic anatomy um, in regards to what makes up the structure and support of our low backs. So in our low backs, we have vertebra, which are the building blocks, um, the large bones within our spines. In between each vertebra exists a disc, which helps support and provide cushion between each level. Behind these structures is our spinal cord, um, a long hollow tube that goes from the brain all the way down to the lower lumbar spine. And at each level in our spine, we have nerve roots that exit providing sensory and motor function to different areas of our bodies. We additionally have small facet joints, which are joints that help us, help us complete movements like pivoting, bending and rotation. And sometimes these joints can develop arthritis. So if you see on the top right image, we have an image of a facet joint that's relatively normal. And on the bottom right image, a facet joint that's a bit angrier and has some wear and tear associated with it. Due to this wear and tear, patients can have localized low back pain um, and specific to the movement that they're completing. Next common cause of low back pain would be lumbar disc herniations. In our lumbar spines, we have these lumbar discs that are cushions, like I've mentioned, between our vertebra. These lumbar discs um, can sometimes wear and thin a bit. Um, sometimes we can cause injury to these lumbar discs um, by forceful activity or trauma resulting in the disc pushing on elements within the spine, such as our spinal cord or spinal nerves. Sometimes herniated discs do not cause symptoms, but when they do, um, patients can have localized low back pain, pain that's going down one leg, or pain that's going down both legs. The next common cause of low back pain I wanted to review was spinal stenosis. Um, spinal stenosis is a narrowing of the spinal canal or the spaces between the vertebra where the spinal nerves pass through. The narrowing is usually caused by arthritis or by injury, um, but spinal stenosis does not always cause symptoms in all patients. When patients do have symptoms from spinal stenosis, they may experience low back pain, numbness or tingling down their legs, and sometimes weakness down their legs. In very severe cases of spinal stenosis, some patients can have changes in their bowel or bladder function, um, such as incontinence or the inability to hold their urine um, and resulting in accidents. As you can see in the image uh, presented, on the left-hand side, we see a normal spinal canal um, and a normal uh, space around our spinal cord. On the image on the right, we see that there are a couple of changes. So we have a patient who has some arthritis and some bony spurs within their low back and a disc herniation. The combination of the two are tightening the space around the spinal cord, resulting in spinal stenosis. And the next topic I wanted to highlight is nonspecific low back pain. 
So greater than 85% of patients who are presenting to their primary care doctor will have nonspecific low back pain. This is defined as back pain without an identifiable cause and without a specific underlying condition to explain the patient's associated symptoms. It's a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that a physician will need to examine the patient and rule out any of the other above causes as being the reason for the patient's presentation of low back pain. Uh, many patients with nonspecific low back pain will improve within a few weeks, so it shouldn't be of too much concern, but it's important to get checked out if you have any concerns regarding your low back pain. As mentioned earlier, majority of patients will improve simply with time and conservative therapy, um, and most symptoms will go away within four to six weeks. However, our topic today is to review some of the other patients who perhaps have uh, persistent low back pain or serious uh, symptoms that may suggest a more serious underlying condition. So when we say red flags, we mean signs or symptoms that pose a threat to neurologic function, meaning strength, sensation, ability to walk, um, or indicate a serious spinal or systemic pathology. So examples of such symptoms can include unintended weight loss, fevers that are persistent, um, or progressive weakness. Examples of these serious pathologies um, that we're looking out for can include spinal fractures, cancer metastases, meaning spread of cancer within the spine, uh, in our case, spinal infections, and cauda equina syndrome. Red flags are noted in less than 1% of patients presenting with low back pain to their primary care doctor. So they're pretty rare. Comprehensive physical exam, a comprehensive history intake and assessment are all key in identifying serious pathology. And it's important to remember that although these red flags are rare, we shouldn't ignore or dismiss any of these warning signs or symptoms. So in terms of what happens when a patient has low back pain, we wanna make sure that they undergo a comprehensive history and physical with their physician or their healthcare provider. So it's important that the patient helps explain where exactly their low back pain is localized to and give details such as when did it start? How long has it been going on for? How severe is the pain? And is it worsening over time? Um, additionally, we'd like to know, are there any associated neurologic symptoms? So these can include weakness in one or both legs, numbness in one or both legs, radicular pain or sciatica type pain in the patient's legs. And are there any changes in their bowel or bladder function, such as incontinence? Additionally, we need to know if the patient has had back pain in the past and whether or not this pain is different or similar to that back pain. Additionally, we a patient should present uh, any additional symptoms that they may be experiencing. So for example, if the patient has been having fevers, uh, unintended significant weight loss, um, unrelenting pain or pain that's not responding to typical meds that have worked in the past, we'd need to know that. 
Pertinent history intake items also include a personal history of cancer, intravenous drug use, recent, current, or past, any recent major bacterial infection, uh, is the patient on chronic corticosteroids, so for example, prednisone or solumedrol, and has the patient had any recent epidural or spinal procedures? A physical exam is then completed to help uh, figure out where exactly uh, the low back pain is starting and get a better understanding um, of how this is impacting the patient. So these, this would include inspection of the area in question, palpation of the low back, so pressing on areas in the low back to try and find out which area has the point of maximal tenderness, assessing range of motion, so having the patient bend forward, bend backwards, and rotate to see if there's any limitation or if there's any specific movement that worsens their low back pain, and completion of a neurologic exam. This would include checking reflexes, uh, checking strength, checking sensation, and checking gait. Gait meaning, is the patient's ability to walk in any way affected, and is it a bit altered compared to how they normally are? Following completion of all of the above elements, a physician or clinician will then help decide what further workup or treatment is needed. This may or may not include images such as x-rays, MRI, or consultation with other services, such as physical therapists, neurologists, physiatrists, pain physicians, or surgeons. In terms of red flags, or the signs and symptoms of serious disease processes, the Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research, AHCPR, has identified eight key red flags that may highlight the need for additional workup and attention. What's important to remember before we continue with the remainder of the presentation is that these categories are somewhat broad. And so if a patient falls into one of these categories, for example, if they're older than the age of 50 and they have back pain, that alone does not mean that they have a serious pathology or health condition. A physician needs to take into account the whole picture. So the patient's medical history, their social habits, history of symptoms, physical exam findings, and risk factors for serious pathology. If there is a high degree of clinical suspicion for something more serious, the physician can then decide if they need to expedite testing, such as imaging, or send the patient for a consultation with another subspecialist to rule out serious pathology. So now we'll go into each of these topics. Um, start off with the first one, age younger than 20. So in this patient demographic, it's pretty uncommon to have low back pain. However, patients who are younger than 20 do have that uh, occasionally. Um, most common cause of low back pain in younger patients is due to muscle strain or sprain and typically self-resolves. So typically it gets better on its own. However, if a young adult has persistent low back pain, and perhaps has neurologic symptoms such as the weakness, numbness, or shooting type sciatica pain in their legs, one should consider other causes of low back pain. So these may include congenital causes, so conditions that 
a patient might have had since birth or developmental causes. These can include uh, the following, scoliosis, spondylolysis, spondylolisthesis, transitional vertebra, and other considerations or other potential causes of low back pain in this patient age group can include inflammatory or rheumatologic disease processes, disc herniations if the patient had some kind of trauma or overuse activity, and rarely cancer or infection. So we'll go through a couple of these in the next few slides. Scoliosis. Um, scoliosis is defined as a lateral curvature of the spine associated with rotation of the spinal column. Most of the time, scoliosis does not cause pain in children or teens, and it's often identified during school exams or physical exams with the pediatrician. When back pain is associated or present with scoliosis, it may be due to the level where the curvature is happening. Um, at that level, there may be stress or pressure on the spinal discs, nerve roots, joints, muscles, or ligaments. Most cases of scoliosis are idiopathic. Idiopathic meaning there's no real uh, identifiable reason as to why the patient is having uh, has scoliosis. But some cases of scoliosis are congenital, uh, meaning the patient's born with it, or neuromuscular, relating to a pre-existing uh, neurologic disorder or neuromuscular disorder. If scoliosis is suspected based on a physical exam, x-rays of the spine can help assess the curvature and guide further treatment options. So on the image on the left, we're seeing a patient with a milder form of scoliosis. Um, the right side, we're seeing a different patient with a bit more severe form of scoliosis. Spondylolysis is also another less common condition, but a potential red flag in, uh, as a cause for low back pain in young adults. Spondylolysis is a stress fracture at an area called the pars interarticularis. So this is a small bony segment in our spines between two vertebral levels, and it results from recurrent microtrauma during excessive lumbar flexion extension. Uh, so patients who um, participate at a highly competitive level in sports such as gymnastics, dance, diving, weightlifting, figure skating, volleyball, soccer, and football um, may experience this more so than your average patient in, who's younger than 20. Typically, spondylolysis does not cause any significant symptoms, but when it does, it may present with low back pain or neurologic symptoms such as sciatica type pain. It's detected by x-rays and if needed, more advanced imaging like a CAT scan or an MRI. But with conservative therapy, so meaning activity restriction, um, anti-inflammatories, and physical therapy, majority of patients, more than 75% of patients with spondylolysis will improve and their stress fractures will heal just with some time. In very few patients with spondylolysis, however, um, we can develop something called spondylolisthesis. So that's seen on the last image here, where the vertebral alignment shifts a bit due to space developing within that fracture at the pars interarticularis. 
So we're going to switch gears now and talk about red flags in adults, particularly in the age demographic greater than 50. So the Agency of Healthcare Policy and Research um, placed this age group as a potential red flag, mainly due to the fact that compared to the general population, older patients have a greater likelihood of conditions such as cancer or cancer history, pathologic fractures, infections, and serious non-spinal conditions. It's these conditions that have additional red flags associated with them that help us identify if someone's at risk for a less common cause of their low back pain. So we'll kind of go through these uh, within the next few slides. Cancer-related red flags. So something that's important to note, there are certain cancer types that are more associated than others uh, with bony metastases or spread to bony areas in our bodies. So these types can include breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, thyroid cancer, and kidney cancer. Any patient who has a history of cancer or is currently receiving treatment for cancer and has any of the following symptoms should bring them up with their clinician for assessment and workup. So these will include newer worsening low back pain, newer worsening neurologic symptoms, so weakness or numbness in their legs, bowel or bladder incontinence, or saddle anesthesia. Um, saddle anesthesia meaning a numbness within the perineal area, groin area, buttocks region. Any patient who has significant weight loss, so greater than 10 pounds, that's unintended over a short period of time. Patients with persistent fevers, chills, night sweats, and unrelenting pain. So pains that is not responding to pain medication, change in position, and any other treatment your physician suggested. In particular, if a patient has more than one of these uh, symptoms, um, they should strongly see their, their primary care doctor or their physician who's treating them. A high clinical suspicion for a cancer-related cause of low back pain will likely prompt additional workup and imaging. So this would include lab work, x-rays, and perhaps advanced imaging, such as an MRI or a CAT scan. Cancer-related presentations that may result in low back pain can include cancer affecting the spinal canal, spinal cord, or the vertebral body, uh, resulting in a fracture if it does affect the vertebral body in some cases. Now, the next major topic within that age group greater than 50 are pathologic fractures. So pathologic fractures can occur with or without low-level force. So there may or may not be a trauma associated with the occurrence of the fracture. A pathologic fracture is typically due to a loss of strength in the bone due to an existing disease process. Examples of these disease processes include osteoporosis, infection, and cancer-related causes. Some patients who develop vertebral body fractures do not have symptoms. 
So in the image we see here, the arrows are pointing to two levels where a patient has had a vertebral body fracture. You see that there is a loss of height of the vertebral body and a change in the shape of the vertebral body compared to the levels above and below. If symptoms are present in regards to a vertebral body fracture, the patient may experience localized low back pain and sometimes radiculopathy, sciatica type pain. Um, a postural change and or a loss of height. There are different treatment options for vertebral body fractures, some of them ranging from conservative, so minimally, uh, minimally invasive, and others uh, to a little bit more procedural-based uh, treatment options. Um, these depend on the type of fracture, the location of the fracture, and any other associated imaging findings uh, in regards to the fracture and decisions as to what treatment modality is best are made between your physician and or other subspecialists um, if a pathologic fracture is confirmed. Osteoporosis, one of those conditions that can put you at risk for a pathologic fracture um, is a common problem that causes bones to become abnormally thin, weakened, and or easily broken. In terms of the name osteoporosis, osteo means bone, porosis means more porous. So we see on the image here, on the left, a normal healthy spinal segment. On the right, spinal vertebra uh, or vertebral bodies that have a little bit more pores and slightly having defects within the vertebral body, likely resulting from osteoporosis. In terms of risk factors for osteoporosis, we have a couple to mention. So age greater than 50, postmenopausal patients, patients with history of fractures, patients who are on long-term steroids, such as prednisone, solumedrol, patients who are at very low body weight, and patients who smoke and or use excess alcohol. In terms of diagnoses for osteoporosis, Diagnostic imaging can include x-rays and DEXA scans. And treatment options um, can include exercise, particularly weight training, resistance and balance exercises, supplements and or medications. So consultation with a physician can help develop, can help determine the best treatment option for a patient with osteoporosis. Another uh, potential etiology or cause of a pathologic fracture can be a cancer-related pathologic fracture. Um, in terms of uh, pathologic fractures, uh, specifically bone tumors, so if cancer has spread to a bony body within the spine, we can have collapse of that vertebral body, resulting in distortion of the vertebral body height. and potentially compression uh, of the structures in the area. So this can include compression or pressure on the spinal cord or on the nerve roots that are near that vertebral body. Pathologic fractures can develop in nine to 29% of oncology patients or cancer patients with bony metastases. So we're going to switch gears now and talk about spinal infections and red flags and risk factors associated with serious spinal infections. So risk factors can include 
patients who are immunocompromised, so patients with diabetes, cancer, HIV or AIDS, patients on immunosuppression therapy, so patients who perhaps have had an organ transplant in the past and are taking immunosuppressant medications, patients who are currently receiving dialysis, current or recent intravenous drug use, current or recent epidural or spinal procedures, current or recent significant bacterial infections, such as bacterial infections within the bloodstream, and chronic corticosteroid use. The presentation, meaning what a patient may uh, reveal as their symptoms uh, that are warning signs, can include fevers, chills, low back pain, and sometimes neurologic symptoms such as weakness, numbness, bowel or bladder incontinence. A workup, kind of like what we've discussed earlier, um, includes a history and physical exam, perhaps advanced imaging, such as an MRI of the low back, and lab work. In terms of locations of spinal infections, um, they can affect a couple of different areas. So one area would be an epidural space or the spinal uh, canal, um, if an abscess develops within that space. So we see on this image on the right, um, outlined an abscess that's developed within this patient's epidural space. And their presenting symptoms were back pain, neurologic symptoms, and fevers. If there is a high clinical suspicion for this patient's pathology, given a patient's risk factors and their symptoms, uh, lab work, MRI imaging, and urgent surgical consultation are usually needed. Some patients will require intravenous antibiotics and surgical intervention as well to address the infection. Another location where spinal infections can occur are at the bone or at the discs within the spine. So in this image, we see both occurring. So osteomyelitis means an infection within the bone. In this image, we see that the vertebral body has some changes within it, highlighted uh, where the arrows are pointing. And in between those two arrows, we see that the disc is also being affected. So an infection of the disc is called discitis. And we're seeing disc space narrowing in this area. Treatment and workup for infections of the spinal discs or the vertebral bodies are similar to what we discussed for the epidural uh, or spinal infections. So those can include perhaps antibiotics, um, imaging, surgical consultation, um, and lab work. The last thing I wanted to highlight for that patient age group greater than 50 are non-spinal causes of low back pain and red flags to look out for. Not all low back pain starts or comes from the spine itself. One example of a serious cause of low back pain that's not coming from the spine is something called an abdominal aortic aneurysm or something we'll refer to as a AAA. And abdominal aortic aneurysm is a weakened area in the wall of the aorta, which is the main artery that supplies blood to the lower body. And that weakening causes the aorta to enlarge and balloon. A patient who is symptomatic with an abdominal aortic aneurysm may have pain in their abdomen, in their back, or in their flank, their side. And the classic uh, 
triad or group of symptoms that a patient may uh, come in with include severe acute onset of pain uh, in these areas, the abdomen, back, or flank, a pulsating abdominal mass, and low blood pressure. If a patient is suspected of having abdominal aortic aneurysm, they often require urgent evaluation, uh, imaging, and likely surgical correction. Risk factors for an abdominal aortic aneurysm include smoking, uh, being male, having uh, advanced age, being a bit older, a history of atherosclerosis, so someone who has a history of vascular issues or plaques, uh, family history of this process, a history of other aneurysms in the past, and or connective tissue disorder history. Other non-spinal causes of low back pain, um, potential red flags, can include pancreatitis, which is inflammation of the pancreas, nephrolithiasis, meaning kidney stones, and pyelonephritis, which is a urinary tract infection that has spread upwards um, and now affecting the kidneys. These can present with one-sided low back pain and sometimes a shooting pain from the flank downwards. In terms of duration of symptoms in regards to low back pain, as we mentioned earlier, majority of patients should improve within four to six weeks, in particular if they have the more common causes of low back pain. However, if there's a patient who has symptoms lasting greater than three months, this may be of concern. And so patients should definitely seek medical assessment and workup if they have red flags plus symptoms of low back pain that are lasting greater than three months or if they have any question as to whether or not their symptoms uh, need further workup. Uh, history of trauma with a new onset of severe and sudden low back pain is a red flag that should not be ignored. Well, trauma can be a major type of trauma. So if a patient falls from a height, such as falling from a ladder, um, if the patient has a significant motor vehicle accident and has a new onset of severe low back pain, they should be examined to rule out a new pathology um, they might have experienced from their trauma. Similarly, though, patients who are elderly and suffer minor traumas, falling from standing or a seated position who now have new onset low back pain, should also seek medical consultation as they may be at risk for a new pathology such, or a pathology rather such as a vertebral compression fracture. Additionally, patients who are on chronic blood thinners um, who experience a significant trauma to the low back um, may experience or have bleeding into their spinal canal called a hematoma, which can present with low back pain and neurologic symptoms. It's important that patients with major or minor trauma and a new onset of low back pain seek evaluation. And this may also require or prompt uh, the patient to get x-rays and or advanced imaging, such as MRI or CAT scan to rule out any kind of fracture or other issue. So some of these topics we've already discussed in the condition-specific red flags and serious pathologies but presence of symptoms such as fevers, chills, night sweats, and unexpected weight loss, any of the above 
that are persistent um, should tip off a patient to seek medical consultation because we'd want to rule out, particularly in patients with risk factors, um, rule out serious pathologies such as infections or if they have a history of cancer, cancer-related cause. And in terms of systemic illnesses, so as we mentioned earlier, patients with a history of cancer, patients with recent significant bacterial infections, intravenous drug use or abuse, recent or past, immunosuppression, immunosuppressed patients or patients who are on immunosuppressant therapy, organ transplant history patients and patients on chronic steroids. Any of these patients with severe acute onset of low back pain or persistent low back pain um, that's not responding to conservative therapy or that's lasting more than four to six weeks should seek medical consultation to rule out a serious pathology. Unrelenting pain. So patients who have no improvement in their low back pain with changes in position, no improvement with rest, pain medications, pain that's worsening at night, and pain that's just not responding to physician-guided therapy, um, these patients as well should seek consultation or reevaluation to rule out any more serious cause of their low back pain. So the last serious cause of low back pain that I wanted to discuss, and that's also highlighted on that um, on that list that we had mentioned earlier is cauda equina syndrome. So cauda equina syndrome is a sudden compression of the spinal cord or the nerve roots of the cauda equina. So these are the small terminal nerve endings that exist in the lower lumbar spine and the low, low back um, past where the spinal cord ends. The most common cause of cauda equina syndrome is a large disc herniation, meaning a disc that's shifted out of alignment and pressing on these nerve endings. However, rare causes can include spinal metastases, so spread of cancer to this area from another area, a hematoma or a blood collection within this area due to perhaps a trauma, infection if the patient's at risk for infection, a trauma history to this area, and or an abdominal aortic aneurysm or dissection. Patients with cauda equina syndrome will typically present with leg pain that affects both legs, so bilateral radicular pain, um, weakness in their legs, a gait disturbance, meaning a change or altered uh, way of walking or altered posture due to this new onset of symptoms, urinary retention causing pain or urinary incontinence and saddle anesthesia, a diminished sensation, the buttocks or groin and perineal area. In terms of cauda syndrome, it's important that it's diagnosed early um, and it requires emergent imaging and possible urgent surgical decompression because if these symptoms are left to go on for a long period of time and they eventually get corrected by surgery, the neurologic function may not recover. So it's important that we understand and acknowledge these symptoms if they're occurring. As briefly uh, mentioned uh, through some of these topics, there are different kinds of testing that can be completed for low back pain. 
Um, so x-rays can be completed to help look uh, for any obvious signs of fractures or alignment issues. MRIs or CAT scans, however, provide more detailed imaging. Um, so we'll choose these depending on patients presenta presenting factors and any other contraindications to one or the other. Bone scans can be completed depending on the type of pathology or workup uh, being considered for a patient. And lab work to assess for infection or inflammation if that's a uh, concern um, from the care provider's standpoint. So it really depends on the patient's history, any presence of red flags, and the level of clinical suspicion as to which diagnostic tests are ordered for a particular patient. So I just wanted to highlight this slide that I think nicely summarizes some of the uh, concerning red flags and some of the serious conditions we want to make sure we're on high alert for. So as we had mentioned for some of our, um, our topics, patients with progressive weakness, saddle anesthesia, urinary retention, any significant trauma history, steroid use, immunocompromised patients, patients with history of cancer and unrelenting pain. These are red flags that we need to look out for. And certain red flags correspond or perhaps guide someone to consider certain conditions as being the actual cause of the patient's low back pain. So these red flags and conditions are not the typical cause of low back pain. However, if a patient does have several red flags, it's important that they seek consultation with a physician to rule out a more serious pathology. So in general, just general advice for patients, you know, when should they or should they not seek consultation? So if any patient has pain that is not going away at night or when lying down, patients who have weakness in one or both legs that new or worsening, patients that have problems with bowel or bladder function, back pain that's associated with unexplained fevers or weight loss, patients with a history of cancer, weakened immune systems, osteoporosis, or the use of corticosteroids for a prolonged period of time, back pain that's a result of a trauma, especially if older patients experience this trauma, pain that's spreading into the legs or shooting to the legs, especially if associated with weakness, and back pain that does not get better within four to six weeks. These are all reasons that patients should seek consultation and not ignore their symptoms, um, just to ensure that there's nothing else that's going on or contributing to their presentation. So the last slide here I have are just some reference I used for a presentation. Um, and I just wanna reiterate, a lot of these conditions that we talked are rare. So they don't affect a majority of patients, but we just need to be on the lookout for them, um, especially in certain subpopulations and patients that may come to the office. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Kloping, for that lecture. Um, I really learned a lot from you here, and I know we've got some um, good questions coming in from our audience as well. Um, and so I think Dr. Sue and I will take some audience questions here. Um, I think it sounds like the first question is a little bit more directed towards some of the lab work that you mentioned um, in terms of red flag conditions and, um, you know, what, what are some common labs or, or certain tests that might be done 
um, when we are working up red flag conditions? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I see that the uh, person who asked the question asked about a CBC. A CBC is definitely where I'd start. Um, but there are other labs that can be used to assess for um, inflammation. So something called an ESR or a CRP. Um, and it's usually a panel of labs that a physician uh, will order to help assess for inflammation or infection. Yeah, I think it's, I think kind of emphasizes how little it does depend, you know, on each patient and sort of what mm -hmm. the symptoms are and, and what we're looking for. Exactly. Definitely does. Very patient specific and yeah, presentation specific, right? So what they're coming in with. Yeah, that, that's a great that's a great point um, that it's very personalized. Um, and speaking of kind of personalized, um, one attendee had a question about you know what if that person um, you know just has a congenital or developmental condition that kind of makes them a red flag. So in this case, things like scoliosis. Like, are there certain treatments that people can, those individuals can do um, to minimize their risk of developing back pain or um, would activities like Tai Chi or yoga help? So um, typically I defer to the physician and to a physical therapist. So physical therapists can be key in helping identify which exercises are best or perhaps which exercises we should hold off on um, depending on the patient's severity of their condition. Um, but Core strengthening exercises, hip and pelvic girdle strengthening exercises are all important just in general for patients with low back pain. Um, it's important though that you don't just you know, watch YouTube videos and follow along there. You'd wanna make sure that you're getting um, expertise from someone who has training in guiding patients uh, into in rehabilitation exercise. So I would start off with a physical therapist um, and then from there consultation with any other um, physician, depending on the condition, right? So um, if it's something like scoliosis, perhaps consultation with a surgeon, just to ensure that you're doing all the right things. Thank you. It sounds like um, functional kind of rehabilitation or prehabilitation mm -hmm. is, is a very key um, component to, to kind of just strengthening the area and to kind of put yourself or put that person at less risk of injury. Yes, I think that's a great way to put it. We have another question here about cauda equina, one of our you know big red flag um, disorders that we look out for, and, and sometimes it, the symptoms can be pretty quite dramatic. I know you mentioned things like losing bowel and bladder function, mm -hmm. um, but sometimes can we see um, a little bit more difficult of a presentation where where it's really subtle, where the symptoms can be very subtle and hard to really detect. Yeah, sometimes they can be a bit more subtle. So if the patient is noticing progression of these subtle symptoms or multiple symptoms, right? So if they're having ridiculous pain that's worsening, plus maybe a change in their ability to walk well, um, plus maybe some numbness that just is persisting, uh, it's a good reason to get checked out and see consultation with a physician. Um, sometimes quadriquina though can, be, can have a dramatic uh, presentation as well. So just be on the lookout for it. If there's any concern in terms of a patient's personal symptoms, they should seek consultation with a physician um, for a more comprehensive exam. One, one question that often comes up, um, mm -hmm. you know, is, is with these red flags and 
Caroline, I think you did a great job, kind of a comprehensive job highlighting all the um, kind of possibilities of things that um, could go wrong when someone presents with lower back pain. What I wonder, what is the role of the pain physician with regards to kind of these red flag symptoms? Are, you know, like, are these things that um, pain physicians are, um, how do they manage this? No, it's a great question. So it, I guess it depends on um, who the patient has seen prior to seeing the pain physician, like who directed the patient to the pain physician's office. Um, sometimes if a primary care doctor, you know, has tried some basic conservative treatment options for a patient, perhaps they sent them to physical therapy, they sent them to, um, like giving them some analgesics and they're just not getting better, they might send the patient to the pain physician. It's important that the pain physician just reevaluates the patient, like, you know, with a new set of eyes reviews their history, ensures that we're not missing anything or might have glazed over something. Um, and I've had patients in the past who had a remote history of cancer, and it's actually picked up once we start doing a little bit more of a workup with them. And it's important that you just have those kind of on your radar to ensure that you're not missing anything. Um, meanwhile, though, you'll have other patients who have seen every consultant um, prior to coming to the pain physician. Um, again, it's important to just you know, imagine a blank slate and kind of um, evaluate this patient with a whole new set of eyes and ensure that we are giving them as much time and focus, you know, as needed um, and not missing any major diagnoses. But it's possible that a pain physician can see some of these uh, issues presenting in the office for the first time. Yeah, I, I really like that um, kind of patient-centered um, approach and kind of making sure that, you know, our, our assessments are not colored by what may have come before. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and also to kind of highlight that, you know, sometimes I guess perhaps these red flags are kind of um, kind of warning signs that the pain that people are, or patients are experiencing may be inducing due to something um, that needs to be addressed, whether it be an infection, cancer, mm -hmm. fractures. So sometimes they, you know, um, it may be an indicator that they may need to go to another specialist to try to address the underlying problem. And hopefully um, by addressing the underlying problem, that'll actually lead to um, an improvement in their back pain. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's important to lean on other subspecialists if needed um, for their expertise, um, especially if you're kind of uh, getting to a point where you're not finding the actual diagnosis for this patient. So it's important to use all the resources available. Yeah, I think that's a good point about, you know, sometimes patients may come into a uh, clinic visit or pain procedure visit, um, you know, kind of with this plan in mind of getting some intervention done, but if there is a suspicion for something more serious than that, um, that might need more workup, that might kind of delay that initial injection that, you know, folks thought they were going to get. Um, but sometimes that's the right thing to do just to make sure we're not missing something important. Mm -hmm. Exactly. There's a question in the, in our chat. Um, and, and this is probably also going to be a great question to go into more in depth um, next week when we talk about interventions and, and medications. Um, but the question is about uh, what are kind of some general treatment guidelines or recommendations for severe, acute, nonspecific axial back pain 
um, non-radiating back pain, kind of in the in our usual um, common age population, age 20 to 50 age group? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I agree, we're probably gonna cover some of this um, with next week's lecture. Um, but typically starting out with um, anti-inflammatory medications, if appropriate for these kinds of patients, um, using um, additional therapies like heat or some patients use topical um, lidocaine patches or numbing patches if needed. And physical therapy, um, again, it, it's very important in these patients. Now pilot if there's any weakness, like core weakness that may be contributing to their low back pain. But it's very patient specific. So, I mean, you really need to um, follow up with your physician once you've started a certain treatment to ensure that you're getting benefit from it and decide whether or not you need to um, implement or change the plan if you're not responding. That's a great um, review of kind of the conservative measures for acute kind of lower back pain, as we kind of stressed uh, both last week as well as mm -hmm. this week, is that a lot of it does kind of um, resolve by by itself. So a lot of the, the treatment is really largely supportive, like you're suggesting. Um, and, and I love these questions. And I, I, I really like so that great. kind of hinting um, at some of the other future topics uh, to come. So this is fantastic. And we will purposely not answer those questions and save them <laughs> for the lectures to come. Um, uh, there, there's another question here, um, which uh, may not relate specifically to the lecture today, but um, one participant had a question of whether or not there was any connections between non-specific lower back pain and hormone activity. Yes, I'm not um, quite sure about, yeah, the specifics of that, but it's something we can look into. I'm sure that um, someone has researched that at some point. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, you know, the, the, the question's a little vague um, in the sense that, you know, hormone activity as in, for example, um, like, association with menstrual periods or mm. another period um, in life where there may be a lot of hormone activity might be during pregnancy for mm. uh, females. Um, sometimes you know, my understanding um, is that um, hormones like progesterone, for example, um, they don't necessarily cause pain per se, but what sometimes happens is um, you know, the progesterone can weaken the ligaments and, um, and kind of cause laxity in the joints. And this physiologically is in preparation for kind of widening the pelvis for a vaginal delivery. Um, and then afterwards, you know, once the joints are loose, correct me if I'm wrong, Carolyn, is that it's sometimes when it kind of comes back together, when the progesterone is gone, it doesn't come back exactly the way it was before. And so then that might be a setup for um, kind of joint um, pain, especially kind of around the lower back. Is that? Well, that's exactly it. Yeah. Due to uh, progesterone causing more laxity. Um, in our supporting ligaments. It's not uncommon that patients just overstretch or move a certain way just because they feel more flexible. Um, and then once that progesterone declines, right, returns to more normal level, start having um, episodes of low back pain, for example, or joint specific pain, sacroiliac joint pain is pretty common, right, um, in these patients who are pregnant. 
and maybe kind of a more of an indirect way to answer this, but um, you know, in your lecture, you talked about osteoporosis and kind of mm. fractures as red flags, but um, you know, potentially some of those patients could benefit from you know hormone replacement therapy to treat their osteoporosis, which kind of you know indirectly might help with um, fracture risk or, or pain resulting from that. Yeah, that's a great point. Oh, here, here's a question here. Um, do sensory symptoms always associate with, um, oh, are sensory symptoms always associated with neuro back pain, not muscular strains or pains or osteoporosis, for example? Yeah. So in terms of back pain, you may or may not have sensory changes. You may just have motor weakness changes. Um, so Patients don't always, I guess, follow the book in terms of the symptom presentation, right? Um, so it's not uncommon that a patient may have low back pain, for example, let's say they have a disc herniation and they just may present with weakness and no changes in their sensory function. Um, in patients who have muscle strains or sprains, you know, they'll have pain localized to the area where they had their injury. Some people may experience a burning sensation or an achy sensation in that region. Um, and patients with osteoporosis, um, typically not, uh, they wouldn't have any sensory or motor changes unless there is some kind of fracture um, involved. In that case, you know, we may need to consider that the fracture is resulting in compression of structures nearby. So structures like the nerve roots or spinal cord um, that may produce sensory or motor changes. Yeah, I, I wonder if that was kind of what this um, person was kind of referring to, which is that, you know, our sensory symptoms, if they exist, always pointing towards like nerve or neural based kind of etiologies. Mm -hmm. um, and on the, the converse, so does that mean if there's no sensory problems um, or does that mean that, for example, like things like musculoskeletal strain or fractures? that they do not cause sensory symptoms because they're not a nerve issue? I mean, it, everyone's presentation is kind of different, um, but I, you know, typically um, if someone has some kind of injury or trauma, um, fracture, muscle sprain, et cetera, um, you know, it's not uncommon to have pain or sensory change, I guess, in that area, meaning heightened pain, right, in that area. Um, Typically, though, like sensory deficit, so loss of sensation um, is going to be seen with um, a neural compression, like a nerve root compression or spinal cord compression. Well, I, I think that kind of concludes our evening for questions and answers today. And, you know, we just want to thank Dr. Carolyn Kloping for taking the time to really go over a, a, a crucial topic that all patients you know, need to know about red flags. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.